secret bunker somewhere outside of Nashville, Tennessee. This is the award-winning podcast, Reality. Good evening, everyone, and thanks for listening tonight. As always, my name is Sandman. I'll be your guide through this strange realm of ghosts, cryptids, UFOs, aliens, conspiracy theories, and other unsolved mysteries that I like to call parareality. Well, welcome back to the podcast, all you dedicated sand fans out there. I'm fresh off a quick trip to San Diego. I took Mrs. Sandman out there to visit uh, the Old Town area, and we did a few other things too. We did a couple of uh, Triple D joints, that's diners, drive-ins, and dives. We always try to hit up some Triple D restaurants whenever we travel. We went uh, ocean kayaking, had a romantic dinner or two, and my most favorite thing, though, was that uh, we visited the Comic-Con Museum to see the Spider-Man exhibit. And if you uh, know anything about me, you know I'm a huge Spider-Man fan. Been that way since I was a kid, and uh, couldn't I could couldn't not go if I was in San Diego, and they had the Spider-Man exhibit at the Comic-Con Museum. It was just like three miles from the hotel we were staying at, and uh, yeah, a great exhibit. So glad I got to go see that thing. And uh, yeah, we were staying at the Sheraton of the Marina. Man, it's beautiful. I've, this, I've stayed there a few times before when I was visiting San Diego on various business trips and stuff. And love that hotel, love that area. It's beautiful to look out over the marina and the, the bay area there in San Diego. So it's, it's, it's really a beautiful city. It's a beautiful area to stay in. If you've never been to San Diego, I suggest that you go. But anyway, it's good to be back here in the secret bunker. Well, tonight's episode is the second in a three-part series on the Yuba County Five. On this episode, I'll be taking a look at the evidence that's been gathered over the years, go over the determined timeline, and talk about a few major suspects as well. So if you haven't heard part one yet, I'm going to suggest that you stop listening to this episode right now and go and listen to the first part so you'll be caught up because... There may be some stuff presented in this episode that won't make sense to you unless you've heard part one. So you've been warned, okay? And as always, to learn more, you'll have to turn on, tune in, and find out. But before we get on with the episode, it's time for some fan mail. This comes from Tony. And this is in reference to the uh, Dogman Cryptid Fest report that I did, uh, cryptid, Dogman and Cryptid Conference report that I did with uh, Eric from World We Live In Podcast. And Tony says, we, we were making, we were kind of making fun of uh, the plural of Sasquatch. And uh, I called it uh, a jokingly said, well, maybe we should call the plural of Sasquatch, maybe we should call them Sasquatch. And Tony writes in, the plural of Sasquatch is Sasquatch. Bigfoot is the same. We could say big feet, but maybe you should promote your term to dispel the silly idea that there is only one. Great report. Well, thanks, Tony, for writing that in. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And I'm glad you appreciate the report. And of course, he knows, I'm, I'm quite sure, that uh, I was... Uh, only joking when I said Sasquatch. It was all said in jest. Um, but uh, yeah, maybe we could, uh, maybe we could, I don't know, patent that term. Sasquatch is the plural of Sasquatch. Or would it be Sasquatches? Sasquatches? Big feats? <laughs> but anyway, yeah, so uh, if you hadn't listened to that episode, uh, my friend Eric, he's a part time co host here on. The podcast. We went to Paris, Tennessee for the first annual Dogman Encrypted conference, and uh, we were talking about um, Sasquatch and Bigfoot and stuff like that, and just made a, a, a joke about what would the plural of Sasquatch be, and I just came up off the top of my head with the Sasquatch. So uh, not really a thing, but, you know, 
It, I thought it was funny. But thanks, Tony, for writing in. I appreciate it. If you got a question or a comment that you'd like to uh, get in on, feel free to email the show. Sandman at parareality.com is the email address. That's sandman at parareality.com. That's the quickest, easiest way to get in touch with me. Or if you want to, just uh, call the studio line, 615-692-1170. That gets you right here into the secret bunker, and you can leave your message, question, comment, whatever. Just remember, if you do uh, decide to call in, that uh, just simply by leaving me that message, you're giving me permission to, to play your comment back on the podcast. So if you want to uh, avoid that, you better let me know somewhere in the voicemail. So uh, once again, Sandman at parareality.com or call the studio line here, the secret bunker 615-692-1170. That gets you right in here to the secret bunker. If you want to call and ask a question, leave a comment, whatever, feel free. Always happy to answer any question. All right, now that I've answered that email, take a listen to this. Parareality is a proud member of the Straight Up Strange podcast network. To learn more about all the awesome podcasts that are members of the Straight Up Strange family, go to straightupstrange.com and get strange. Hey. How would you like to be an agent of chaos? What is chaos? It's the knowledgeable apprentices of Sandman, and that's what I call my Patreon account members. I'm looking for new agents, and I'd love it if you'd sign up to become one. There are three levels of agents, and all are extremely affordable, $5 a month or less. Each level offers exclusive content along with the ability to help create podcast episodes and even the chance to be a guest or a co-host. To learn more, head on over to patreon.com slash parareality. 100% of the proceeds from Patreon goes back into producing quality content for this podcast. You are listening to the Parareality Podcast, your information source for conspiracy theories, UFOs, the paranormal, and all things unexplained. New episodes drop the first Friday of every month at 8 o'clock p.m. Central U.S. time. Listen on your favorite podcast station. Turn on, tune in, and find out. If you wish to change, you must first lift the veil of ignorance that has been cast over your eyes. Only then will you see the true power of the universe. So, last episode was the first part of my three-part series about the mysterious disappearance of five young men from Yuba City, California, back on February the 24th of 1978. More commonly referred to as the Yuba County Five, sometimes called the Matthias Group Incident, and it's also known as the American Date Law Pass Incident. So, uh... The first episode, I kind of talked about the boys, who they were, their ages, kind of gave a little bit about their background, and then uh, also discussed um, about basically them disappearing and the search for them after they failed to return home the next day, the discovery of the bodies. and the condition that the bodies were in when they were discovered. So to do just a very quick recap, just to refresh your mind, there's a group of five friends from Yuba City, California, who were all mentally handicapped in one way or another. There was Gary Dale Mathias. He was 25. Jack Madruga, 30. Jackie Hewitt, 24, Theodore, or Ted Weir, 32, who's the oldest of the group, and William Sterling, who was 29. They were five friends who were all, um, basically, they were bonded by their love of sports, most specifically basketball. It wasn't just because they had some sort of learning or mental handicap. 
or disability, um, they loved basketball, and they played uh, for <clears throat> a team that was um, sponsored by a um, program designed for young to help out young men with uh, developmental disabilities. And um, on the night of February 24th, they all decided to drive from Yuba City to Chico, California, which is about an hour, hour and a half away. They were going to see a college basketball game, and then they were going to drive back home because they actually were playing in a tournament the next day themselves. Well, they never came home. No one ever saw them alive again. It wasn't until several days later that their car was found two and a half hours in the opposite direction of their home, 4,500 feet up the side of a mountain in a national park with no sign of the boys, as they were affectionately known, to be found. And it wasn't until six months later that uh, their bodies were recovered, and they were another 19 miles up the face of the mountain in a forest ranger station, like a, a trailer that was equipped with heat because it disappeared during the winter, right? Because it was February. So there's a lot of snow. Uh, this trailer was like a rescue trailer, a shelter. It had uh, sea rations in it uh, and, and heat, gas heat or propane heat. Uh, one of the boys was found emaciated and dead in the trailer. The bones of all but one were found outside in different locations several yards from the trailer. The only person's body who was never found was Gary Mathias. Now, we don't know what happened to him. We don't know if he's dead or alive. We don't know what caused those boys to go up the side of that mountain. We have no idea why they were there. So that kind of covers the first part. And tonight, in part two of this, we're going to be discussing the evidence that's been gathered over the years and kind of break it down a little bit for you and kind of let you, I guess, make up your own mind based upon the evidence what could have possibly happened these young men. So on February 24th, the night they disappeared, several witnesses recalled seeing the boys at the game, and a few even recalled seeing the uh, Mercury Montego, the car that they, that they were driving, leave the parking lot immediately after the game, which was shortly after 10 o'clock p.m. local time. Now, if you'll remember... I gave you the names of those young men. One of them was Jack Madruga. And Jack Madruga's nephew, George, said that while Madruga wasn't familiar with the road where the Montego was found, that he was confident that Madruga could navigate it in a way that his car wouldn't be damaged. You see, that was his... Baby, that was his most prized possession on the face of the planet. And when they found that car, it was pretty much in pristine condition, not what you would expect. If you didn't know where you were going up the side of a mountain on a dirt road, you'd expect the car to be kind of rough and dirty and, you know, it was going to hit some ruts and bumps and potholes and everything. But the car was pretty much pristine, almost as if whoever drove it knew every turn and nook and cranny. The only thing that was... Uh, I guess out of sorts with the car was that there was candy wrappers and uh, uh, stuff like that, you know, junk food wrappers and stuff that was in the floorboards. But they had stopped at a store and bought some junk food. So they obviously ate it. But you would think that uh, since Madruga was very prideful of this car, he never let anyone drive it but himself. And since he was so particular about this car, you would think that it would be uh, unlike him to let people just throw their trash down in the floorboard. So it kind of tells you that maybe they were in distress, maybe they were scared, maybe they left that car in a hurry. 
We don't know. But like I said, Madruga's nephew, George, said that even though Madruga wasn't familiar with that area, that he felt pretty sure that he could baby that car and drive it up the side of that mountain in a manner where it wouldn't be damaged. Now, Madruga lived with his grandmother in a house on a rutted dirt road approximately half a mile or more from the main road. And he drove a dirt road with ruts in it, like was going up the side of that mountain. He drove that every day. So he knew how to navigate a bad road. So it's not out of question that even though he wasn't familiar with the particular road that the car was found on, that he would know how to navigate a ruddy, pothole-filled dirt road. Now, back at home at 5 a.m., Weir's mother was jolted awake, and she went to check to see if Weir had made it home. Now, remember, Weir was, uh, how old was Weir? I got to look and see. He was, uh, he was the oldest one. He was uh, 32. His name was Ted, Ted Weir. And uh, his mother was jolted awake at 5 a.m. the next morning, and she went to, to check to see if he had made it home only find his bed empty. That's when she began to panic, and she called Bill Sterling, one of the other boys. She called his mother, who had been awake since 2 in the morning, waiting for these people to come back. And she actually confirmed that Sterling hadn't made it home either. So Sterling's mother had already called Madruga's parents, called Weir's mother, and then let the Hewitts know, who then walked to the nearby Matthias home to check with them. And sure enough, all five of the men hadn't come home. They were missing. So at 8 p.m. the following night, Madruga's mother called the police. Now in Brownsville, the woman who had seen the men pull up in a red pickup at the corner store where she works said that one of those men matched Hewitt's description and was on the phone for 15 minutes. So this woman was um, in Brownsville at a corner, and some men pull up in a red pickup truck. And she observed that uh, not only did one of them match the description of Jackie Hewitt, but he was also on the phone for about 15 minutes. And an important thing to remember here is that Hewitt is the one that gets really anxious about phone calls. So other people like his brothers and his friends and stuff like that would have to make phone calls for him. Now this puts this particular sighting of the boys in question, in my opinion. But to even further confuse things, a woman by the name of Carol Waltz, who was the owner of the store, where the boy stopped, and this was a man, not a woman, he also said that he saw several of the boys both on February 25th, the day after the basketball game, and Sunday, February 26th. And nearly all newspapers said that it was 19 miles from the car to the trailer, which is, if you ask me, that's a really impressive trek to make in snow that is anywhere between three and six inches. Because if you remember back from last episode, there was a snowstorm, right, which kind of hampered the uh, search efforts for these kids. So it's really, really difficult, I would think, to be walking in, number one, unfamiliar territory, number two, at night, probably with no flashlight, in three to six inches of snow. This area that you're not familiar with and you're not equipped, you don't have the correct gear, you've just got sneakers on, and like I said, it's at night, no flashlight. Now, it's estimated that the average person can walk a mile in somewhere between 15 and 20 minutes, but that's in ideal circumstances and wearing proper attire and being familiar with the surroundings, blah, blah, blah. So even if they were to manage, let's say, on the the high side, a mile every 20 minutes, it'd take them somewhere around six hours or a little bit longer 
to get to that trailer that they were found in. And it's a safe bet to assume that they probably weren't even going that fast. So once again, not wearing the proper gear at night, no flashlight, snow between three and six inches. You don't know where the hell it is you're going. You can't see. And it's 19 miles from the car to that forest ranger trailer. So if it takes you 20 minutes to walk a mile, it would take you a little over six hours in ideal, perfect conditions to make it to that trailer. And you'd have to know that the trailer was there too. So there's there's that that you have to think about. One of the many puzzling things, and there are a lot of puzzling things about this, but one of the many puzzling things about this story is exactly how did they do it? Well, it turns out that the distance they traveled might not have been as far as what was reported in that 19 miles. So hear me out. It was stated that the men likely followed the tracks left by a snowcat that was plowing the day before, which followed roughly where the road to the trailer would be. The distance, which was based off details from a Napa Valley Register article from uh, 1978, has since been remeasured, and it's been determined that the real distance was probably closer to more like 11 miles, and that's assuming they didn't make any detours and they went straight to it. While that's still an impressive distance to hike in the snow at night in unfamiliar territory, it still makes it a little bit more achievable than 19 miles because you're shaving eight miles off of that, right? So no one is sure where the original distance of this 19 miles came from. Like many things, it's possible that one newspaper uh, reported it wrong and all the other reports just copied that detail. Don't know, but um, it's looking like it was a shorter trek. But still, you're talking about at night, unfamiliar territory, not wearing the right gear. It's dark. The snow's deep, anywhere between three and six. I think I was saying three and six inches. It's three and six feet. I can't remember if I said feet or inches, but it was between three and six feet. If I said inches, then uh, that's on me. But, yeah, so let's just say it was three feet, okay? So that's a lot of snow. And if if it's now, we get snow here in Nashville, but it's not a lot, and it doesn't snow that often. Maybe we get it once or twice a season, you know, a winter, and it's not it's not really a lot. But when we have had some significant snow, it's not three feet, and it's always light and fluffy. Okay, so if just assuming that we're gonna go with the three feet and we'll say it's at the lowest level, it probably to pack that much snow that high would probably be the lighter type of snow, right? It wouldn't be really dense. But still, you don't know where you're going, and you don't have the proper attire, and you can't really see. Now, I don't know if it was a full moon or not. You know, when it's, it's snowing all on the ground, that white snow will reflect a lot of light, and it'll make things appear a little bit brighter than, than really what they are. So it could have been that there was enough light for them to see how to navigate, but we just don't know. But what we do know is that 19 miles might have been misreported, and it might have been more like 11 miles, which would have made the trek a little bit less difficult. But still, it's a feat nonetheless, given the circumstances that they were in. And remember, once they got to this ranger shack, this ranger trailer, which was apparently, the way that it's described, was apparently set up for just like this emergency-type situation, lost hiker, someone's injured, something like that, because it had all these rations in it, it had heat in it. So, uh, you know, you can assume that this was like an emergency-use trailer only. 
So speaking of those C rations, now, if you're a military person, you know that the C rations were the precursors to what the MREs are today, and that's meals ready to eat. So the C rations were what they gave to the military when they were deployed out, and that's what they would eat. So here's a little more detail about those C rations. There were three cases that were completely consumed. Each case contained 12 individual meals. It was like a beef stew, crackers, fruit, stuff like that. Okay, And there was a total of 36 meals that were eaten. Now, this doesn't really tell us a lot. It doesn't tell you, did they all share these meals? Did one person eat all 36 meals? How many meals were they eating in a day? Was there more, like I said, more than one person that was sharing these meals? Now, we have to assume that there were at least two people, one being Weir, the one who was found emaciated in the trailer, and Madruga and Matthias were the only two who knew how to use the can openers that were used to open these meals because these sea rations come with a can or come in a can, and with these rations is a P38 can opener. And if you remember last episode, I said that they determined that some of the cans were open using a P38 can opener. So since Madruga and Matthias both knew how to use the P38 can opener, thanks to military careers and so forth, one of them must have been there at some point. Now, we know that Matthias's shoes were found in the trailer, and we have no evidence of Madruga being there, though. And if Matthias had only come in long enough, say, to just trade shoes with Weir before heading out for help, he might not have stayed around there. And one of the many questions that we're left with is why didn't they start a fire? Matthias would have definitely made a fire if he had been there, and that's according to statements from his family. He knew how to make one, and if the others were concerned about some sort of breaking the rules or, or, or I don't know, you know, being cold or, or whatever, it, it wouldn't have hindered Matthias because he knew how to make a fire. He knew what he was doing, and he didn't have this rigid thinking that a lot of people who have handicaps, um, mental disabilities have. Now, remember, he was uh, the one that had schizophrenia from drug use, so his mental disorder wasn't something that was genetic that he was born with, right? So he didn't have these same uh, rigid thinking ways that some of the others did. So here's another theory as to why there wasn't a fire that was lit. What if it was because they were scared that someone would see the smoke? What if they were chased up that mountain? What if they were forced to go there and then something happened and they were able to escape out of that car and run off somehow miraculously all sticking together and found that trailer. But they were scared that if they lit a fire that someone would see smoke. Now, Weir, Ted Weir, he was 5'11", 200 pounds, at the time he went missing. But when he was found, he had lost somewhere around 80 to 100 pounds or so. And it's been determined by a, uh, a Plumas County pathologist that based on the growth of the beard on his face, that Ted had lived in the trailer from 8 to 13 weeks before he died. And one of the possible reasons the other food stores hadn't been 
accessed was if the other men had gone to find help and left Weir behind. And in his sick and weakened state, he wouldn't have been able to do much for himself. Now, they also determined that he had lost five toes to frostbite, and his feet were, well, they had gangrene set in from the frostbite. And he wouldn't have been able to walk or might not have even been able to get out of bed either. But what we do know is that his body had been wrapped in sheets. Remember I said he had been like cocooned in with these sheets in a method that was impossible for him to have done himself. And in his condition, it's really highly unlikely that he'd have been able to do that and get his arms back in there. He was so weak. So there must have been some other person in that trailer that helped him get wrapped up before they left. Now, it's suspected that Weir had died approximately two weeks before his body was found. So if he could have just hung in there for another two weeks, we could have had a totally different outcome to this. Maybe he could have told investigators what happened, or they could have somehow pieced it together. I don't know. Everything I've read said that Weir's death was caused by starvation or maybe even hypothermia. And, yeah, he had been cold and he had been hungry, but the actual cause determined by the autopsy was pulmonary edema. Now, pulmonary edema, that's a condition caused by excess fluid building up in the lungs, and this fluid collects in your air sacs or your alveoli in the lungs, and it makes it difficult to breathe. In most cases, the cause of pulmonary edema is going to be cardiac-related. It's going to be your heart, right? But fluid can collect in the lungs for other reasons, like pneumonia, exposure to certain uh, toxins and medications, uh, trauma to the chest wall, severe infections, like an untreated gangrene. Remember, he had gangrene in his feet. And if you travel um, or exercise at high elevations, you can get pulmonary edema. And remember, they were 4,500 feet, actually a little bit higher than that, of the side of this mountain. So he had several things going on with him that could contribute to pulmonary edema. Now, pulmonary edema that develops suddenly is called acute pulmonary edema or flash pulmonary edema. This is a true medical emergency, and it requires immediate life-saving care. Pulmonary edema can sometimes cause death, as you can imagine, because if the air sacs or the alveoli inside of your lungs, if they fill up with fluid, they can't exchange the gases, they can't exchange the oxygen and the carbon dioxide, and you can't breathe, and you can die. Now, the outlook improves if you get treated properly and quickly enough, and treatment for pulmonary edema can vary depending on the cause, but it generally includes medications along with some supplemental oxygen. Now, there is absolutely nothing any of the other boys could have done for Ted Weir other than to get him help, get him to a hospital, or get a doctor up there or something. Now, it's possible that his condition is what drove the rest of the, of the boys out into the wilderness in an attempt to get him help. It just makes logical sense. Their friend is sick. They don't know what to do. They just know that he's sick. Some of his toes have fallen off. He's weak. You look at his feet. They're nasty. They're infected. They got gangrene. And if you've never seen gangrene or frostbite, it's nasty. I've seen both of it, and it smells horrible. So you don't have to be a super genius to figure out that someone like that is sick and they're going to die. doesn't matter what your level of intelligence is. You know that this guy's in trouble, right? 
So it's very possible and plausible that they decided, hey, our friend's about to kick it on down the road here. We need to get out and try to find him some help. We need to get him some help. Now, you fast forward to June 6th. A local man, with the help of his tracking dogs, find Madruga's remains. And Sterling was found shortly after that. But Matthias, like I said, has never been found. And this, of course, has led to speculation that he was the person behind the disappearances, that he had something to do with all of this. As far as I know, Matthias never did anything to any of his friends to suggest that he didn't like them, that he was jealous of them for some reason or harbored any kind of malice toward them in any way. And if you'll remember, the medications that he was taking had no side effects that would cause him to become mentally unstable. In fact, the medication that he was taking was designed to keep him mentally stable. And if you remember, last episode, I described the medication that he was taking. And I said, remember this medication. Remember these medications because I'm going to be referring to them later. Well, here's the reference to them later, okay? If he was off of his meds, then that could explain a couple of different things. Maybe it could explain if he went crazy after they were went missing. But remember, he took his meds pretty regularly. I mean, there was no, I haven't found anything that said that he was uh, prone to not take his medications. But you got to remember, those guys were out there up the side of that mountain in that park ranger trailer for, for quite a while. And they were only supposed to go to a basketball game, and then they were going to jet it on back to the house right in the same night. So why would Matthias need to carry any of his medications with him, right? So therefore, it's logical to assume that Matthias didn't have his medications with him whenever they made the trip. And once the medications ran its course through his system and it got all out of his system, the psychosis that this medication was meant to keep at bay would rear its ugly head. And who knows what Matthias would have been capable of then. But that doesn't account for why the boys were up there in the first place. Unless we can find Matthias's body or by some miracle find him to actually still be alive, we'll probably never have the answer to that. So I don't think that you can say Matthias went crazy and he kidnapped his friends and drove up that mountain and, and forced them all out. I, there's no evidence of that. Like I said, he was pretty, everything that I can, can find out about him, he was pretty regimented with taking his medication. Now, you're going to be up there on the side of the mountain, lost for six months. And, of course, that medication is going to run out, run its course and get out of your system. So could he have been responsible for going crazy and killing his friends after they got up there? Well, absolutely. But like I said, that doesn't account for why they got up there in the first place. So in order to um, speculate that Matthias was the person who uh, force these kids up the side of that mountain who kidnapped them in the first place, you have to forego the fact that he was on medication that was designed to prevent psychosis. So we come now to a man who is probably the number one suspect and as far as I'm concerned, he's the number one suspect, and he's a really, really weird guy. His name is Joseph Shons, S-C-H-O-N-S, Shons, Joseph Shons. Now, this guy said that he inadvertently ended up spending the night of February the 24th in his car up near where that Montego was found. 
and according to his statement that he gave to the police, he had driven up the mountain because he had a rental cabin up there, and he went up there to check on the cabin before his rental family got there. He had rented it out to a, uh, excuse me, he was going up there for a ski trip. I'm sorry, he had not rented it out. He was going to take his own family up there on a ski trip that he had planned for the weekend, but he went up there ahead of the storm, or trying to get ahead of the storm, to check on the cabin. And at about 5.30 in the afternoon, 150 feet up the road from where the the, uh, Montego was found, he says that he got stuck in the snow. And in the process of trying to get himself free, he realized that he was beginning to experience the symptoms of a heart attack. So he got back in his car, left the engine running so that he could have heat, and he sat there for six hours. Supposedly, he was in severe pain in his chest for six hours, laying there, and he heard what he described as a whistling noise down the road. So, still in pain, still having this quote-unquote heart attack, he gets out of his car, and what he saw looked like a group of men and a woman with a baby walking in the glare of another vehicle's headlights. And he thought he heard him talking, but he wasn't sure. And then he said he yelled for help, but the headlights cut out and the talking stopped. So Sean's got back into his car and he laid down again. And this all seems very suspect to me. If you're having a heart attack, you're not going to feel like getting up and uh, walking around outside. And I highly, highly doubt that you're going to be able to, unless it's a very mild heart attack. People have heart attacks all the time, first of all, and don't even know that they've had them. But if you're experiencing this severe chest pain, chest pain means that there's damage or injury occurring to your cardiac muscle, okay? So you can have an injury to your muscle or you can have damage. Now you say, what's the, what's the difference? Well, an injury doesn't necessarily equate to muscle death, but damage equates to cardiac muscle death. Now if you're having enough damage done to your heart where you're in severe chest pain and you have shortness of breath, you're probably not going to lie there for six hours in a cold car. You're probably going to die. Now, there is another thing called angina. I'm not going to get into that, but it mimics a heart attack. It could be that he had angina. But regardless, I find his story suspect. Oh, I'm having, I'm stuck in the the snow. Oh, I'm having chest pain. Let me lie down in the car for six hours. Oh, look, there's someone out there. Let me call for help. Let me get out and run around and call for help. Oh, no, the lights go out, so I'm just going to go lie back down in the car. Makes no sense. Now, he continued on with this, this story and said that he laid in his car until it ran out of gas. And then while it was still dark, while he's supposedly having this heart attack in severe pain, he walked through the snow eight miles back down the road to the lodge. It was called Mountain House. And he had stopped there to get a drink before he headed up the road. So we are now talking about double-digit hours that this guy lay in this car, supposedly in severe pain, having a heart attack, and then walked eight miles in the snow back down the mountain. That just doesn't make sense. You're not going to do that if you're having a heart attack. You would literally kill yourself if you were doing that. Just the exertion alone, you would die. So he he was driving a Volkswagen, 
And just below his Volkswagen, that's probably why it got stuck, right? Uh, uh, just below his car, in the place where he had heard the voices, he passed the Mercury Montego sitting empty in the middle of the road. Now, supposedly, doctors later confirmed that Sean's had indeed suffered a mild heart attack. But first off, let me say that this dude is sketchy as hell. Even though his report seemed to be considered quite reliable, and if if you look up or read anything about the Yuba County Five disappearance, his report is widely cited. There may be more to this story than what he originally said. Now, there are several different versions of Sean's account, and it's hard to say if this was due to uh, reporting errors or that Sean's himself kept changing his story or even a combination of both. Regardless, a closer look at Sean's gives us a better idea of his character and raises some questions. One of the discrepancies is how he got home the next morning. In one account, he said he got a ride at the lodge to go back home where his wife would take him to the hospital. But in another account, he was taken directly to the hospital from the lodge. And interestingly enough, in another account, he claims that he saw a pickup truck behind that Mercury Montego. And when he was asked about it later, he said he, quote, didn't remember why he said that. So let's circle back to this alleged heart attack. Like I said, this is something that I've got major problems with. Now, as most of you know, I'm a medical professional, and I know a thing or two about heart attacks. And one thing that I can tell you is this. Doctors can look at an EKG tracing of your heart and tell you if you've had a heart attack in the past, but it's damn near impossible to tell exactly when that heart attack occurred. So they can look at you, your EKG and say you're either having a heart attack right now, it's actively going on, or it looks like you have had at some point in the past that you've had a heart attack. Excuse me. But it's impossible to tell exactly when that heart attack occurred. So think of your um, heart like the battery of the, the body, right? So when you are watching TV or when you're in the hospital and you're hooked up to the EKG monitor and you're looking at the monitor, you see the little blip tracings that go across. There's one pattern that what it does is it measures the electrical activity of the heart. Okay, so you've got a certain electrical pathway that goes through certain areas of the heart in order to make it beat normally. And if it's beating normally, you've got this nice trace that you can look at and see. And if it's abnormal, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that's going on that in that tracing that tells that it's abnormal. So you've got to, this electrical current, for lack of a better word, has to fire to the SA nodes, go through the AV nodes, and all that sorts of stuff. Um, so without getting too deep into it, once you've had a heart attack, your EKG tracing is forever changed, okay? Um, so a doctor can look at you, and they can determine if you've had a heart attack in the past, but they can't tell you when it was because remember, like I said, sometimes people have heart attacks and it's so mild that they don't even know it. Well, that'll show up if it was uh, significant enough, that'll show up on your EKG and they can say, well, it looks like you've had a heart attack in the past, but they can't tell when that thing occurred. And if you've had a heart attack, you're probably not going to be able to walk eight miles in three to six feet of snow down the side of a mountain to a lodge. A part of your heart muscle will be dead, and this is going to reduce the amount of blood flow and oxygen to your heart and your brain, making that feat a little bit unrealistic. A lot unrealistic. Damn near impossible. Not to mention that you'll probably be so weak due to the heart attack you just had that you're not, you wouldn't even be able to walk a few yards, yet alone eight miles. 
Now, remember I said that Sean was experiencing this heart attack, quote-unquote, I'm using my air quotes, and that it could have been angina. So it's a known fact that Sean's had heart problems. And, yes, he did have a condition called angina. And angina is a type of chest pain caused by reduced blood flow to the heart. Angina is a symptom of coronary artery disease. And the signs and symptoms of angina are pretty much exactly the same as a heart attack, but it isn't a heart attack. Now, my opinion is that Sean's was experiencing an angina attack and not indeed a heart attack at all, if he even had one to begin with. So let's talk about his car next. Sean's drove a VW Beetle. Remember I said that's probably why I got stuck. Those things are not known to be the most powerful vehicles ever made, and they didn't make them in four-wheel drive. And one of his claims was that when his heart attack started, he laid down inside the car with the heater on to stay warm until the car ran out of gas. But listen to this. It turns out that the VW Beetle doesn't produce any heat when the RPMs aren't high enough. So the volume of hot air that's blown into the car is dependent on the fan and the fan shroud, which is dependent itself, in turn, on the RPMs of the engine. So in other words, at an idle, the interior of the car would probably have been really, really cold unless Sean sat there with his foot on the gas pedal all night long, thereby raising up the RPMs of the car, making the heat produce faster and the fan turn faster and hot air blow into the cab of the car. And also, have you ever seen the inside of a VW Bug? It's super small, man. I've been in several of them. There's absolutely no way to lie down inside of a tiny car like that unless you lay in the unless you lay the back of the seat as far back as you can. Now, even by doing that, it's not something that's very comfortable, and I think it'd be very hard to do for the six-plus, the double-digit hours that Sean's claimed that he did so. And another thing that's questionable about this guy, Sean's, is the supposed cabin that he was checking in on. Now, property records for the time show that he owned property in the area in 1969, but that property was an hour south of the location in question. Now, if that's true, why did Sean's lie about being up there to check on a vacation cabin? What was he trying to hide? Well, it turns out that Sean's was a notorious alcoholic who was known to also be a pathological liar. He was also involved in the sale of illegal drugs, so he was definitely a shady character. Now, did he simply make up the story about being in the area to get his his version of his 15 minutes of fame? Did he fabricate the story because he was a pathological liar and couldn't help himself? Was he using the story to cover up for some sort of illegal drug activity that he was involved in? Did he have anything to do with the disappearance of the boys? Well, get this. Sean's had an 18-year-old daughter who had a mental disability. She had dysphagia. and Dysphagia is a language disorder. It affects how you speak and understand language. People with dysphagia might have trouble putting the right words together in a sentence, trouble understanding what others say, trouble reading, and trouble writing. This opens up the possibility that Sean's and his daughter could potentially have crossed paths with one or more of the boys through the gateway projects or the events that that group held for the disabled. Now, remember the gateway projects was that group that helped mentally handicapped individuals. And the boys were on the basketball team for the Gateway Project. As a matter of fact, they called themselves the Gateway Gators. 
Now, it was reported in several newspaper accounts, including the article in the uh, June 14, 1978 Napa Valley Register that the boys, and I quote, attended dances for the handicapped in Sacramento. So, could Sean's daughter have been at one of those dances? It, it's also got to be considered a possibility that Sean's daughter could have been involved with a program at the Gateway Projects where the boys were regular fixtures from. Now, it should also be noted that Sean's claimed to be a drug abuse counselor. The Gateway Projects also offered drug abuse counseling, which is why Gary Mathias went to Gateway and subsequently became involved with the Gateway Gators basketball team. So I'll bring up these points because maybe Sean's new Matthias or some of the other boys, maybe one or more of them took a liking to his daughter. Maybe Sean's didn't like that very much. Maybe he disliked it so much, in fact, that he took it upon himself to do something about it. Maybe he was at that basketball game and decided to take advantage of an opportunity that presented itself to him right there on a silver platter. Well, that's a lot of maybes. But that's all we have with this case. There's a lot of questions, a lot of maybes. And we don't have very many answers to anything at all. As a matter of fact... Every time you find out the answer to one question or think you've found out the answer to one question, it brings up two or three more. So that about does it for this part two episode of the Yuba County Five. Stay tuned next week, next Friday at 8 o'clock, whenever I come back, we're going to be talking about the theories as to what actually happened with these boys. Whew. That was a lot of stuff to go through, wasn't it? Man. And that Sean's character, I tell you, he is shady, shady, shady. He is sketch as hell. And as far as I'm concerned, he is my number one suspect. But... Is he your number one suspect? Well, listen to this episode again. Listen to the first part again. Start putting all the clues together. Form your own opinion. And then come back next Friday. And let's see if your opinions match up with mine. So that about does it for the night. Thanks for listening. Before I uh, close it out, as always, more stuff to listen to. Did you like being scared? Does the feeling of your threat tightening fear leaving you unable to scream exciting? If the answer to these questions is yes, then you should listen to Scared to Death, Stories of Suspense, Science Fiction, and Horror. Scared to Death airs the third Friday of every month at 8 o'clock p.m. Central Time. Tune in for the fright of your life. things are going in the world? Have you always wanted to save whatever was on your mind without having to listen to someone bitch about it or suffer any repercussions? Well, me too. That's why I created the Set It Off podcast. I'm sick and tired of the stupidity that's going on around here, and I'm going to let everybody know how I feel about it. So hop on board this train and fasten your seatbelt because I'm about to set it off. 
Set It Off can be heard on your favorite podcast station. New episodes drop on the fourth Friday of every month at 8 o'clock p.m. Central Time. You never know what I'm going to say next. I hope that you enjoyed tonight's episode of Parareality. If you want to leave a, a comment about it or anything else about the podcast, let me tell you how you can get in touch with me because there are a few different ways you can do it, and here they are. The best way, the fastest way, the easiest way is to simply email me, sandman at parareality.com. That's sandman at parareality.com. Or you can visit the official Parareality Facebook page. That's Facebook.com slash Sandman.Parareality if you want to go straight to it. Or if you just happen to log into Facebook, just look up Parareality Podcast on Facebook. You can post a message on my wall. You can send me a, a DM. You can slide right into my DM. Now, I haven't created a group because I've got a uh, Facebook page. I don't know. I've been toying around with creating a group, but phew, I don't know. Let me know. I tell you what. You guys let me know what you think about it. Should I create a Parareality group in addition to the page. So let me know. Slide into my DMs there on Facebook. Also, if you've got uh, Twitter or Instagram, you can follow me on both of those. My username is at Radio. That's at Radio, all one word. And finally, you can always call the podcast. Call me here in the secret bunker at 615-692-1170. Leave me a message on the studio line. But I want you to remember this. If you do decide to call and leave me a message, you are giving me permission to play your comment back on the podcast. So if you don't want that to happen, you need to let me know somewhere in your message. Now, I'm always looking for interesting stories for the podcast, so if you have a story that you'd like to get on the show, tell it to me over the voicemail. That's 615-692-1170. There's a three-minute time limit on the voicemail, so if you run out of time, call back and pick up where you left off. So those are all the ways you can get in touch with me. Sandman at parareality.com, Parareality Facebook page. Let me know if you want me to start a Facebook page a parareality group on Facebook and in, in addition to the page can slide into my DMS on Twitter and Instagram at para real radio or call the studio line 615-692-1170 right here in the secret bunker. Also all my sand fans out there. Don't forget to visit my website, parareality.com. That's a place where you can keep up on all the latest paranormal news from all around the world. I've got an entire page of the website dedicated strictly to paranormal and UFO encrypted news and all other kind of weird stuff. And it's updated almost daily. It's on the Paranews section of the website. You can also shop in the Parareality store, watch some, some terrible videos that I've made for the show over the years and Listen to the podcast archives. I got tons of audio on the website from the various incarnations of parareality over the years, along with my other podcasts, Set It Off and Scared to Death, which I just advertised here. You can find all of that content absolutely for free in the archive section on the website. That's parareality.com. Make sure you check it out. Speaking of the podcast, parareality can be heard on your favorite podcast station. Just search for Parareality. If you've got a smart speaker, you can listen there too. And if you have any of the already mentioned podcast skills on your device, just say, play the Parareality podcast. I've also got a YouTube account and you can listen to the podcast there too. Believe it or not, people actually listen to the audio that I upload to YouTube. I know YouTube's a video channel, but I upload all the audio of my, uh, uh, podcast episodes up to my YouTube channel, and people actually listen there too. As a matter of fact, I just got a comment last week from YouTube, so uh, you can listen there too. Just go to uh, look for Para Reality One. That's Para Reality One on YouTube, or, or to just go directly to it, you can go to YouTube.com/user/slash Para Reality One. So I got all kind of documentaries, UFO and paranormal documentaries. 
uh, some new stuff, those terrible show videos that I did on my short-lived web TV show that was absolutely horrible, but it's there for your viewing pleasure. Feel free to make fun of it. So those are all the ways you can get in contact with me, all the ways that you can listen to and watch your favorite podcast, Reality. So that's it. The next episode of Reality is going to air next Friday, 8 o'clock p.m. Central U.S. time. So make sure you turn on, tune in, and find out. It'll be the third and final chapter in my three-part series on the Yuba County Five. That's next Friday at 8 o'clock p.m. Central U.S. time. Turn on, tune in, and find out. I hope that this podcast opens up your mind to new ways of thinking, expands your consciousness, and produces a change in the way you see the world. If you wish to change, you must lift the veil of ignorance that has been cast over your eyes. Only then will you see the true power of the universe. I hope that you enjoyed this podcast. I hope that you have a wonderful evening. I hope you have a great weekend, and I will see you again next week. If you wish to change, you must first lift the veil of ignorance that has been cast over your eyes. Only then will you see the true power of the universe.